Hello, dreamer. You are about to meet another teacher dear to my heart, Geraldine Mattis of Justice College International. Like Bob Quinn, who I talked to in episode five, she's a holistic healthcare provider who is also passionate about dreams and the symbolic realm. She's bringing you insights from her decades of work with reproductive health and with dreams. I met Geraldine in 2006 when I began studying fertility awareness on the way to certification as a holistic reproductive health practitioner. Ever since I started using fertility awareness myself for natural birth control at age 19, I had wanted to learn it well enough to teach it to others. I've loved my years of teaching this method. My favorite thing about it has been the sense of empowerment and possibility I could see opening up for people who had never thought that they might have this kind of relationship with their own fertility, which had previously been anxious or confused or discouraged. And as my work has moved more fully into dream work and practicing Chinese medicine, I've been doing much less with fertility awareness. I still love seeing people light up with some version of empowerment and possibility, but my work has been taking a different form. So when I shared this with Geraldine, I was excited to hear more about her own deep love of dreams and the realm of symbolism, and I'm excited to share that with you now. One thing Geraldine is uniquely positioned to speak about is the relationship between dreams and the female reproductive cycle. That is ovulation and menstruation, or the monthly period. We get into this subject in the second half of this episode. To prepare you for it, let me give you a few definitions real quick so it will make more sense. Having taught fertility awareness for many years, I understand that even for those of us who go through a menstrual cycle hundreds of times in our lives, this is not yet common knowledge. So the period or menstruation is the beginning of a new cycle. After that, eggs start maturing and eventually one is released in the event we call ovulation. So there's the bleeding phase that we call menstruation or the period. And from then until ovulation, we call the pre-ovulation phase. Geraldine will talk about the types of dreams she's more often seen during this pre-ovulation phase. And then ovulation itself, the release of that egg, is really a turning point in the cycle. If a pregnancy is going to happen, it begins at the time of ovulation. If it doesn't happen, then about two weeks later, the next period comes. The week or so before the period comes, we call the premenstrual phase, which is when PMS can happen. So we talk about premenstrual dreams too, and this is when those dreams would be happening. You'll also hear us talk about how these days might be a time of early pregnancy, but the person doesn't know they're pregnant until their period doesn't come. So the same day, the same night of dreaming could either be a premenstrual day or a day in early pregnancy and the person might not know which it is. But Geraldine also mentions how dreams can have a really different quality in these two different situations, whether the person's about to get a period or at the very beginning of a new pregnancy. Okay, I think that is all you need to have an idea about to understand what we get into here, but let me know after the episode if you have more questions about this or reflections of your own. You know I love questions and reflections. One last thing before we start, 
If you're listening to this close to its release on the new moon in August 2020, I hope you'll join me on Wednesday, August 26th, or catch the recording of this gathering I'm hosting on Zoom, Dreams and Health, three ways to recognize the healing messages in your dreams. You can learn all about that and register at thedreamersden.org health. Okay, enjoy the episode. You're listening to the Dreamer's Den podcast. I'm your host, Leilani Navar. I'm here along with guest dream workers, authors, and teachers to talk about diving deep into your dreams. We're skipping the small talk and going for conversations about what matters most to us, what's touching us so deeply that it shows up in our dreams, in one form or another. We talk about engaging with dreams to experience insight, inspiration, healing, and meaningful connection with one another. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can catch all these conversations. Visit thedreamersden.org slash open for a free video and mini book I put together to help you learn more about opening up or deepening your own relationship with your dreams. My guest today is Geraldine Mattis. She is the founder of The Justice Method, which is a fertility awareness-based method. And she's currently the college dean and academic director of Justice College International. Geraldine has been a fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner since 1977. And she's been active in the reproductive health freedoms movement since that time. She also has a doctorate in depth psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. Her doctoral work is called The World's Geography of Love, and it focuses on a psychophysiological view of women's beauty and blood mysteries and how these are connected to love as the glutinum mundi, or the glue of the world. Her work now integrates her experience in sexual and reproductive health with a depth psychological view of healing. Welcome, Geraldine. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me. I would love to hear from you how dreams play a role in your work and your life, maybe how you first got interested in dreams and realized that they mattered to you. Well, um, I had many big dreams, as they call it in the depth psychology field, and visions from when I was a very young child. And they always sort of told me the truth is the best way I can put it. I grew up in a pretty untruthful family and um, system, and I was often very confused about what really was going on and what was the truth. And then I would have a dream that would, in some symbolic way, let me know what I knew to be true was true. Um, one of them was, you know, around my mother's death. You know, I had a dream that, that was very clear that she was going to die. And that there was things that, this was when I was seven, and there were things that I would be called upon to do. Um, I made the grand error of telling people in my family. And then I was punished, of course. And then when my mother did die, I was punished more and considered like a demonic child for having brought that about. But that somehow didn't stop me. Um, One of the things that I have come to understand is I have a very tenacious um, respect for the symbolic life of human Mm -hmm. beings. And um, 
I have a sort of a personal opinion that actually that matters more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, we can be easily seduced by words. We can be easily seduced by materia, but the imagination always is telling us the truth because we have no control over it. Oh. Um, and even when we try to do like lucid dreaming and manage our dreams, we're still using our symbolic function to manage that. Right. Wow. What a powerful story. What was it like for you? I mean, I'm sure it's a long journey, but between then and then your work at Pacifica surrounded by people who value the imagination and dreaming, how was it for you to hold true to that from age seven, where it was so profoundly rejected until now? You know, I, honest to goodness, Lanani, I cannot tell you how. I, I think it was many times what we might call grace or divine intervention or anything. Mm. Um, I had a stubbornness in me and still have around, you know, holding fast to the symbolic world. And because it so often put me, put me at ease, comforted me, and gave me clear direction then every time that would happen it would just deepen my my um understanding that it was a correct path to follow i think um of course when we're very young we're much more tuned in to you know the unconscious and imagination than we are as we once begin to become young adults where we have to actually by necessity develop our ego and become all smarty pants and managing the world and all of that uh-huh. um but it was so i kind of did what was very typical with children i came out of that sort of uh, fairy magic world and wanted to be kind of like everyone else and started to engage in the world as my culture dictated it at the time for mm-hmm. people of my age and then it was after the birth of my first child so that would have been 1978 and Again, I engaged with having a child as well. That's what you do. <laughs> so it's uh-huh. kind of like, especially I came from a very large family, and everybody, you know, children were just the thing people did. You know, seven, eight, nine, twelve children. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was after the birth of my first child that something was struck in me very deeply that I was in deep trouble sort of recommitting the sins of the father as it were you know in terms of raising the child and my values and that there is all the things that i had felt injured by i certainly didn't want to do to this completely beautiful little being yeah that i was immediately deeply in love with and i'm sure many people will share that kind of experience yeah um and so i knew that i was not that well and sought some help and uh, I had the very first dream I had was a Native American woman. And at the time, I didn't know I had, was of Native American heritage or part Native American heritage. But in the dream, she was inviting me to get out of this sort of labyrinth or maze of kind of like white concrete. It was very sort of your typical industrial kind of scene and to come out of that well to come out of that was to go into the desert and i'm not a fan of deserts like deserts always make me a little bit kind of anxious and thirsty you know i'm I'm kind of a (laughs) woods and water girl um but something compelled me to follow her and she was very like kind of old wizened 
you know, wrinkled, all wrinkled up in her buckskin and, you know, sort of that kind of a costume. And she reached with her hands into this red desert earth and dug deep enough to where there was moisture. And there were hundreds of thousands of eggs mm. of some sort of creature. And I was actually quite freaked out. I was only 23. I was pretty icky and like kind of looked like insect eggs, but I wasn't certain in the dream. There were just eggs, you know, like kind of the primordial eggs. And I was like, I didn't want to look. And she kept inviting me to look at it. Now I had a dream with that woman for in my dreams for about 15 years, almost every year within a week of the first dream she would come in my dream and there was an evolution uh -huh. of what that was about and what i came to understand was that she was inviting me to look at the mysteries you know the creation mysteries mm -hmm. um and at the time i had just started doing fertility awareness and i kind of connected that that there was something about being engaged with understanding the mysteries of the female physiology and the cycling and all of that, that had to do with something very profound. And so I kind of kept hanging with this old woman and developing my work in fertility awareness, developing my work in functional medicine and healing, you know, doing my training and learning, and, and ultimately in depth psychology. And I was my interest in depth psychology came sort of well before that because I was always sort of interested in mystical things and magical things and done a lot of reading and alchemy and magic and stuff at that time. So it was sort of a natural kind of union of the two, my interest in fertility awareness and science. And, and um, I was involved in the home birth movement and became a midwife and this whole development of the love of the female body and the, all of its mysteries, really, the profound, like, oh my God, how we make mother's milk. Like, it just blows yeah. my mind to this day, you know, how the fetus develops, how we don't reject it from the word go. And there's just so many, really, in some ways, things that seem to be in the realm of miracles that happen in that process. And so I think there was just a deepening reverence for me and the, this dream of this old woman kind of speaking to me about what these eggs were and meant kind of kept encouraging me um, as well as my work with the people I was working with, you know, clients coming to me and me sharing what I knew and their excitement and enthusiasm. And what I, I think very quickly discovered, which made me a little bit of an oddball in the natural family planning community at the time, and still in some ways, even in the fertility awareness based method, realm is that I understood it's not just science uh -huh. that to engage with fertility awareness is actually to engage in some level with transformational mysteries mm -hmm. uh, because when I started to see in my clients their dreams changing as they engaged with it making sort of very deliberate choices about how they would live or not live who they would relate to or not relate to as sexual partners seeing things like, you know, having, inviting them to do dialogues with their uterus, 
and how that would change their experience of menstruation, for example. As one woman that I was working with was suffering from menorrhagia, and she had just been with a new relationship, like a couple of years, and she had never had menorrhagia up till she, when she started dating this person, then eventually living with them. Which is very, very heavy bleeding for our listeners who may not know the term. Thank you. Very heavy bleeding. So one of the things that I always ask my clients is, when do you, when did this start? And when do you, or when do you remember last feeling well? Like what was happening in your life? So I said, when did this heavy bleeding start? And she goes, well, it's sort of, you know, and then she kind of pieced it together to being, beginning to live with this man. Uh-huh. And the relationship sort of seemed okay. But one of the things that she was experiencing was what we would now call um, lamp lighting, right? Is that the word? Oh, gaslighting. Gaslighting, lamp yeah. lighting, yeah. Yeah, I, it wasn't that term back then, but that's what we would call it. You know, this what was true for her was always being reinvented by him to somehow be not her truth and was feeling more and more shut up. Mm-hmm. So she had this dream in which she was sleeping and he snuck into her room with a scalpel and took out her uterus. Wow. And the dream had a profound enough effect on her and frightened her enough that she was willing to think that maybe something about her relationship with this person was not okay. Mm -hmm. She ended the relationship, the heavy bleeding stopped. But then our work went further into, because whoever we get into relationship with is of course always in some ways a reflection of our own inner drama and our inner story. So then we had to enter into, you know, who, what is, what is the intrapsychic dynamic that would want to cut out her uterus, that would want her not to have that. And then there was a long journey of her really reclaiming her confidence in herself as a woman and the fact that being a woman was okay and much more. That's an incredible dream image there and the layers of meaning that you're already getting at to the relationship with the actual person in the dream in waking life and her relationship with the inner qualities that would want to do that and yeah her uterus as her womanhood and i would think of that inner knowing and truth and creative potential because you mentioned how her truth was being constantly questioned exactly so yeah that the kind of the experience of being gaslit her own without him even her own history of kind of denying herself many things because she was a woman or being shut down because she was a woman, not you know, this is occurring at the time when the feminist movement was very loud, Uh kind of much like the black lives matter movement is very loud right now. The feminist movement was very loud in a similar way. And so she had identified with, you know, she wants the power that man has, which means that she can't do what, what her own, woman self wanted to do Mm -hmm. and so and but then there's the two pieces of course the dream reflected her own interpsychic dynamic but also told her about what was happening externally and guided her to help herself and told her what was happening medically or at least suggested it 
Exactly. Well, it wasn't literally medically, but it was symbolically. Yeah. That and, and the fact that he was like sneaking in, you know, mm -hmm. he wasn't being overtly violent. He was doing it very covertly, which of course does speak to a collective sense sometimes that that the patriarchal mind would like us not to have uteruses <laughs> because they're inconvenient, they're problematic, unless children are to be had the rest of the time, you know, they're considered a problem in terms of, you know, we might become hysterical, um, you know, we're bleeding and bleeding is kind of a problem for many reasons. I don't need to go into the whole menstrual taboo. Right. And the, the inconvenience of it, even the disruption to the every day being the same level of productivity. Right. But also to the ways in which I think the menstrual blood reminds the ancestral patriarchal mind of how it actually shut down the blood mysteries mm. that were once such an important part of human understanding, imagination, ritual, discourse, where the menstrual blood or the blood of woman was a powerful thing. It was a magical substance. Mm -hmm. And so that dream really speaks to sort of some profound ancestral fear and hatred of the uterus and what that represents. Yeah. And the bleeding, the heavy bleeding in the symbolism of waking life, in my imagined version anyway, is almost like an outcry you know, to get even louder in that moment of trying to, of some force trying to silence it, to produce. Right. Two things. Yeah. The outcry and also the getting rid of. Mm. Yeah. The flushing it away. Well, th this conversation is so rich. There's so many places I would love to go. And you're really speaking my favorite kind of language where the symbolic and the, the mythical level of our waking lives is interacting with our dreams, is interacting with the very concrete, researchable, repeatable, statistical realities of our physical bodies. Because I know from having studied fertility awareness with you and gone over cases with you, how rigorous you can be about those details and the scientific quality of that. Mm -hmm. And so for all of this to coexist together, feels very natural to me, but it is not so natural in our culture at large. So I'm wondering if you have any examples where these, these two ways of knowing, maybe we could call them, or ways of understanding the world come together for your clients or for you. And it's like your, your image of the eggs underground and the power of that image giving rise to both this mythical living of your purpose around the feminine mysteries and the deep research you've done into female physiological health. Is there anything you want to say about that, about those working together? Oh, well, I, I have to say, if I wasn't working the two together, I would, I should be sued for malpractice. Mm. <laughs> you know, because I see how, you know, if I'm doing psychotherapy with somebody and I'm not paying attention to what their physiology is doing, whether it's a male or a female or otherwise, it, you know, it's, I, I may well be, you know, kind of aiding and abetting the sickness, you know? So if someone's yeah. eating really a poorly, you know, low nutrient dense diet with lots of sugars in it, then that's going to affect mood and 
health and everything, you know, yeah. as well as it will affect how we dream or don't dream. So I, in my own conscience, because I know the two different fields, I have to marry them together because I would feel like I wasn't being helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing about sort of tying the psychology to the physiology and fertility awareness is that, and I see this movement, I mean, fertility awareness is much louder than it's ever been in my life. Yeah. Is that there's still a tendency to commodify and commercialize fertility awareness. Yeah. And as with, as with everything in our cultural way, right? As with everything. Yep. Everything, everything can be commodified. Mm -hmm. So um, part of really reclaiming what I call the feminine principles or the principles of sort of being with what is really real and true now, rather than having to control and manipulate, etc. But to is when you, when I invite people to work with their menstrual cycles or work with their bodies, it's about what is the meaningfulness of this to you, not so you can have a perfected body. Mm-hmm but so that you can have a profound respect for this, this life you've been given and, and the opportunity to experience life through this physical, you know, physical being that is you. And to kind of move into a place more of awe and respect rather than how can I use my body to get what I want and need? How can I use my body to be more attractive so I can attract the right mate or get the right job? How can I use, how can I take care of my body so I can work it harder Mm. versus how do I take joy in the very fact of my living and being? How can I care for my body because it is this beautiful and miraculous gift I've been given? So it's a matter of sort of a shift from doing, which is very much the realm of the patriarchal world. You know, it's like you have to be productive and doing, and everything has to be put to use as much as possible. Yes. Versus how do I just take joy in the fact that I have legs that can walk through the garden? It's so beautifully said and a reminder that I think I still need on a regular basis, you know, the the tension between that idea of perfecting the body so that it can feel better to be in here and do more of what I want to do with also wanting to feel simply connected and in a deep relationship with the life flowing through me and being alive in this body and experiencing all the sensations of it and, and not, uh, as you say, wanting to do something to it or do something about it. Okay, so let's do an analogy here for people to really get this because I think that we'll go into like a psychological horror show. (laughs) Okay. So you have a baby and, you know, maybe you've worked really hard to get this baby, you know, whatever, and you're so happy to have this baby. And there's two ways that babies are raised. One, they're raised according to what the parents want the child to be when they grow up. And two, the parents raise the child to become who the child is. Mm -hmm. So let's say you and I are having babies and we have three of them 
and we are raising one to be a doctor, one to be a lawyer, and one to be, um, I don't know, a news anchor. Okay. And so our whole purpose for everything we do for this child, their care, their education, their nutrition, is so they will become what we want them to become. Mm -hmm. What do you think the child's inner life will be like? Oh, probably terribly conflicted and <laughs> tortured with their own, between their own drive to be who they are and drive to please us. Exactly. So really innately, we have something within that is driving us. So in depth psychology, we call it like the genius or the daemon, which is what is our soul's kind of story purpose for being, Yeah, you know, having incarnated in this body. So if our ego takes over and says, the purpose of this body is to make, you know, a six figure salary and to have hot abs or whatever it is. Yeah. We override what the daemon of our soulful purpose is. And so how do we balance that out? How do we wake up in the morning with gratitude that we have this physical body, that we get to experience the world again, and out of gratitude, we care for our body rather than, okay, we got to get this horse on the road. We're going to get, you know, we're going to feed it and whip it along the road. Yeah. So it's a big shift. It's a big shift. It might look similar on the outside in terms of the actions we take to care for our bodies, but profoundly different relationship with the body. Yeah, exactly. And you wanted to know a little bit about the beauty and blood mysteries. Yes, please. This is sort of has to do, especially for women, because our physical beauty is one of our most, our biggest power tools whether we like it or not, you know, we live in a world where we are judged by our physical beauty and it, ga it gives us purchase. It gives us power. So what happens is right around the time where young girls begin their first bleeding, they are also being preoccupied with being coming sexually attractive and competing with each other and whatever it is, the whole, you know, kind of cultural piece that comes around that. So there's an emphasis on them paying attention to their beauty and becoming attractive and getting somewhere because of that. And of course, in modern times, it's like, well, you can be smart too. Um, but if you're smart and ugly, you will not get the same attention as if you're smart and beautiful. It's just how it is right it's now true. in the world, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. and, but no one's talking to you about your blood and what that means. Mm. And that actually your beauty is connected to your blood because the health of your cycles contributes to your physical beauty. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not talking about the shape of your nose necessarily or the size of your hips, but that your overall physical well-being and beauty comes from a healthy cycle. Right. And in, in Chinese medicine, we talk about this in terms of the same kidney energy that gives you lustrous hair um, and the energy behind your eyes and your lungs and large intestines showing up in your skin. These are all showing exactly. up in the cycle as well. Exactly. Exactly. So that kind of radiance and that vitality, which is attractive, right. Is connected to your cycle. So part of the work is to help them understand that the beauty is within really mm -hmm. and the care for the cycle. And that always creates a profound psychological sort of shift for them 
because a lot of times they'd say, well, this is just a real inconvenience, this period thing. You know, now I have breasts and I'm looking kind of hot and, you know, I can be attracted to who, whomever I want and the blood seems to be an inconvenience. But when uh -huh. you tie in that the health of their ovulation and menstruation, because that's cyclic events, is related to how hot they're going to be. Uh -huh. They get it. They yeah. get it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I've done a series of workshops with women in kind of from 19 to 25 age group, sticking to that group where we did, where we workshopped weekends together, focusing on the blood and the beauty. So we, we workshopped, what does it mean to be beautiful? How do we express our beauty? How do we feel about it? And then also what about our blood? And the very important component in the workshop was to have the women serve each other and to be served. Mm. That's part of our traditional ways of doing beauty, right? Is beautifying one another. Right. And not falling into competition. So I wonder as we're tying this radiance and beauty to the blood and our cycle health, if it also ties to what we were talking about or how it ties about the genius and the soul's purpose, you know, the radiance that someone can have when they're really connected to what they're doing here and feel that they're living their purpose. And if I could even reach out and thread in the dreams, because I think you talked about how that dream of the native American woman and the eggs gave such an anchor to the purposeful work you've gone on to do. Mm -hmm. And I, do you see that connecting with the blood and this symbolic layer and the dreams is also helping them connect with that sense of purpose, their, their genius? Right. So when I work with people, of course, I work, you know, where they're at. And so for some, they're, they're more focused on menstrual cycle issues. Others are not. Um, so I really pay attention to what the dreams are asking us to focus on. A lot of the work of psychotherapy is is to kind of unhook people from the collective agenda mm. to find out what their own internal agenda is. Um, so a lot of that work is finding the soulful purpose. People come, they're not happy with a relationship or their work or they're full of self-hatred, their addictions because they they can't find peace. And so part of the how do you find peace with them is to look at what are their dreams saying because their dreams will tell them. So for example, every day before I have, you know, the big monthly office meeting, I have dreams of being on the beach and huge waves are crashing over me and I'm being swept out into the ocean. So that indicates, of course, that there's an overwhelm with the work situation. Mm -hmm. So then we have to explore, well, what is the overwhelm? How is it not, you know, taking you on a happy little sailboat, you know, through the Caribbean, right? <laughs> so it's about the dreams will tell us what is happening, comments on what's happening in our life situation. Mm -hmm. And so it's about how do we pay attention as we pay attention to that. So in this example I cited, so then it was it became a question, what is this work? Is it meaningful for you? You know, what are your options? Can you change? And a lot of the therapy for this person centered around them getting into work that was coherent with their soulfulness. Yeah. 
and then the dreams stopped. Now, what's interesting is the dreams for this person come whenever they're getting into something like that, some sort of dream of an overwhelming natural event comes into their dreamscape whenever they are moving away from what is truthful for them. Oh, I'm sure there are people listening right now who just had an aha moment because that's, I think that that's a, a common human version, imaginal version, you know, the, the big waves and the earthquakes and the volcanoes. and Right. So if you're having these big kind of cataclysmic natural events in your dream, then it's, it's really something is, you are in danger. Mm -hmm. of being overwhelmed by the nature of something. And typically the nature of something is the nature of your own life and being. So mm -hmm. how do you get into a more harmonious relationship with the nature of your being? Which oftentimes means that people have to, you know, really trash all the ideas they had, trash all the, I'm going to be a this, I'm going to be a that, and deepen into what really is, matters and is meaningful for them. So it's scary and it's, yeah. it's, it's huge because sometimes you have to leave a dysfunctional relationship or a family or you have to move somewhere to change your job or you have to spend all your savings to get an education or take a loan out or, you know, that not, this isn't small stuff, but yet yeah. if, <clears throat> if you don't pay attention to those sorts of dreams, then you deepen into your, any kind of neurosis you have and most likely you'll deepen into addiction. Uh-huh which then becomes, you know, the more you deepen into it, the harder it is to come out of the other end of addiction and the, and the more damage you wreck on your body and your mind and your psyche. And I'm not just talking about like street drugs or alcohol, but like addiction to food or shopping or Netflix or, you know, where we're any kind of, of you know, um, sort of avoiding behaviors that we do that keep us from really experiencing the truth of our own feeling and being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is no small task. Like you're saying, it's, <laughs> it's huge. It's good. That, yeah. People need support in that, whether from someone like you or friends or family. I mean, you think about people facing a natural disaster. You don't do that alone. Well, you can't do it alone actually. And that's really the whole topic of my dissertation mm. is that you have to have love to do mm. it. You have to have self-love and you have to have the love of others to love you unconditionally, no matter what kind of messed up state you get in, no matter how much the choices you're making seem completely crazy and going against what other people thought you should or shouldn't do, mm -hmm. etc. So it has to be love. You have to have love. Beautiful. Well, while we still have some time, I want to come back and ask you more about dreams and the cycle. I'm having to hold myself back because I could talk to you for hours about any one of these things you're bringing up. But um, I know that people listening are especially interested in dreams. And there's often for people with a menstrual cycle, this question about, you know, premenstrual dreams. Sometimes I'll see PMS related Chinese medicine type patterns in premenstrual mm -hmm. dreams. If there is some kind of deeper connection during menstruation, maybe the veil is thinner, we could say, or, mm -hmm. and you have such a unique position having done work with cycles and dreams for decades. And I'd love to hear anything you've noticed around that. Yeah, thank you. Um, it is something that I ask my clients and I actually did track my own 
dreams with my cycles for oh, I don't know maybe like 20 years I can't I can't remember exactly but I in my journal I'd always put where I'm at in my cycle where the moon was and then whatever the dream was uh-huh. I think there's there is my experience this is not of course I haven't done a double blind placebo controlled study but my clinical experience my personal experience is that there seems to be um, the veil is a bit thinner premenstrually mm-hmm. And during the kind of first couple of days of menstruation, and of course, our physiology is different, and our neurophysiology is different at that time. So whether there's like a neurophysiological component that makes us more open to the shamanic realm or not, nothing on that has been proven. But definitely, there seems to be a trend to be a more more likely to have dreams. In the pre in the pre ovulatory phase, often the dreams are very sort of simple, kind of yes you're on the right track or or you're not like very kind of simple little um, navigational corrections. Uh-huh. Whereas the big dreams, the dreams that are like uh, you're on the totally wrong ship and you're on the totally wrong ocean kind of dreams, you know, come around in the premenstrual period. Mm. And I think that's highly interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And also often the big dreams come when people are ill. Uh Uh-huh. So there's something about being physiologically, we're energetically pulled down a little bit. So we're a little bit more out of our egoic mind. When we're ill, likewise, we're sort of pulled out of our egoic mind, pulled down a little bit more into the unconscious realm. And so it makes sense to me that the big dreams would happen in that time because we are less connected to the outer world. Uh-huh. Well, I think too about the the symbolic nature of the cycle and how it's a creative process mm-hmm. and how pre-ovulation things are just getting going, you know, as those eggs are are just starting to mature and all the possibilities could still be kind of equal. Mm-hmm. That it well, I think of dreams as recognizing how high the stakes are, right? When we get a nightmare or a really big, a really intense dream in any way, I have the sense that the stakes are higher of whatever the dream is talking about. Exactly. I would agree with you. Yeah. So pre-ovulation, almost the stakes are lower. We're just getting going. But then getting closer to menstruation in terms of the creative process, that's also where we're, would be ripening um, Uh, the new creation, if there's a pregnancy there, right? That's where we're sustaining the new life and Mm -hmm. moving into either birthing that new thing or letting go, letting go of the uterine lining again with a period and getting ready to start all over again. I want, does that resonate for you that creatively we're in a different place? Well, definitely we're creatively in a different place. And so pre-ovulatory Noticing that they're kind of just small navigational corrections seems to me, if you're going to use that analogy of creative, you know, creativity, mm-hmm. is that there's not, you don't want to disturb it. It's in a very sort of seed like place. Uh huh. And also, too, when a, a, my experience when a woman's pregnant, that persists. It's like little small navigational corrections. It's when a woman isn't pregnant in the premenstrual that that she has these big dreams uh-huh so often the big dreams for a woman who's about to conceive will come in the during the premenstrual 
in anticipation of a pregnancy in the next cycle or the next two cycles mm. to put her into a big shift and change and get ready and got to quit the job or whatever happens, you know? Yeah. And then, and then it's like the psyche settles down. Psyche has you where you need to be for your, for your soul's purpose. And then it, it becomes quiet. Mm. If there's going to be a pregnancy. So it's, we can't, the time, the premenstruum during a pregnancy is what we might not know as a pregnancy during the time where you might be premenstrual is not the same as when you're actually premenstrual. Right. So if you're if you've already conceived, the psyche responds differently. Yeah, of course that makes perfect sense, and you're you're in a completely different hormonal state. Exactly, and a different psychic state as well. Yes. Yeah. And of course, dreams will often give warning that the pregnancy isn't viable, that something has happened. It's mm-hmm. very common prior to a miscarriage mm-hmm. or a, you know, like a fetal death, especially in later pregnancies that, mm-hmm. that um, the mother will have had a dream already to say there's something not right. It might not be that the, the fetus is dead, but that, you know, whatever, the dog died or something has happened. Yeah. Yeah. Can I share a dream with you? Please. I'm curious what your take would be on this. It's a little snippet. And it was when I was pregnant with my second child and still, I think late in the first trimester, I was experiencing a lot of stress and anxiety about a couple of things in our lives at that time. And I was feeling doubly anxious because I thought, what if this stress and anxiety is negatively affecting my baby? Mm -hmm. And I had a dream that the point in my ear, so, you know, we have acupuncture points in the ear, there's a map of the body Mm -hmm. and the point in my ear associated with the heart is bleeding. Mm. And in, so I, that's the dream on waking immediately. I'm gripped by this fear that I'm going to miscarry because the heart and the uterus are connected through a, Mm -hmm. a channel in, in the Chinese medical anatomy. So I'm thinking, okay, symbolically, this is, a miscarriage of my uterus through my heart. I don't know, but of course I'm very anxious at this time. So it's easy for me to read it that way. And then I went to the midwife and they did a little ultrasound to hear the heartbeat and the heartbeat sounded wonderful. And I guess I hadn't even realized how worried I was because I cried with relief when we heard the heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And she asked me, why were you so worried? I told her, well, I had this dream, you know, And like many medical providers, she gave me a version of, oh, that's just a dream. Don't you worry about those things. I had so many weird dreams when I was pregnant and I, I didn't go into it with her. You know, I didn't say, no, I, I worked with dreams. There was, there was a reason it wasn't, it was symbolic, you know, but in any case, my baby was fine and she's still fine. I'm just curious what you make of that dream. If it, if it says anything for you. Well, you know, I, I would, of course, pay attention to the dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, I think already you had an intuition that you were a bit more stressed out than was ideal for mm-hmm. a pregnancy and had a concern of how that might affect the child. And in, in a most simple way, the dream was saying, yes, pay attention, uh-huh. keep paying attention that this could be. Um, and of course, when we have dreams and we're pregnant, sometimes the dream is about the child. Mm-hmm. You know, so is this about her heart? And we have to look at the heart not just physiologically, but psychologically. So, what is this child's experience in the uterus? What 
is the dream telling you about something that is developing in her heart at a psychological level or spiritual level or soul level that might you might need to be wary about or mindful of mm. um, you know that there might be some connection being made already so i would take that dream forward into time how old is your little girl six six so i would contemplate you know who is she on a heart level mm -hmm. what is the character of her and how perhaps maybe the dream might be speaking to you about the heart connection between the two of you and how that might be more fragile than maybe the heart connection between your other children because not every child's the same in terms of what you know they need from the parent right some are pretty like delicate and they you know need more tenderness than than others yeah yeah definitely well that's really a great angle for me because in terms of the five element energetics mm -hmm. in this dream there's this overflowing of heart fire energy mm -hmm. through the blood and indeed i would say that she has an abundance of the heart fire element right so that's yeah that's very interesting right so then that yeah so the dream was in some ways probably already telling you and of course it's interesting that we often go into catastrophizing mm -hmm. in, from dreams right rather than moving away from fear into what does this mean and what is it trying to tell me and because we we it's part of our sort of culture you know our world culture it's part of being overly driven by the the ego and masculine principles is that we go into fear so we can go and fix it you know get out the sword and kill the dragon mm. but to resist the fear of what the dream is telling us you know because we put our our like non-dreaming judgment bleeding is bad uh -huh. right rather than what does bleeding symbolic symbolize right so we immediately go into oh my god something's wrong so that's what i mean by resisting catastrophizing yeah because in the dream world there is no good or bad mm -hmm. it's just an image that's trying to speak to you about what's going on but we we have to be careful not to literalize the dream world yeah i'm so fascinated by that right now i'm i'm listening on audible to larry burke's book about cancer warning dreams exactly and it's it's challenging my i've been you know i think at first we do want to take our dreams in some literal way they're really about this person or they're really about this thing and then we have to move into symbolism but now i'm i'm listening to these warning dreams where there was a lot of literal information for the people who later were diagnosed with their cancers mm -hmm. and so I'm looking for this new way to hold open to the literal and symbolic at the same Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We have to ask what literally is happening here in my life and how might the dream be correct and what is it might be symbolized, but not to move into fear. Yes. Right. So because as soon as we move into fear, we lose our symbolic function. Mm -hmm. And then we can't make sense of, of anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think if we're not overtaken by fear or some other big emotion, we do have the capacity to sink in and know, ah, uh, yes, this is what this dream is about. Exactly. Whether it's literal or symbolic to, to get that ring of truth. 
Exactly, exactly. And so when we're working with a dream, we still want to, if I have, if I have a dream about you, I have to say, oh, okay, what's going on between me and Lalani? Or maybe I, I'm sensing that you're not okay. And I have to ask that question. And then also I have to say, and if Lalani were an aspect of me, what is this? Who is this? Mm-hmm. What is, you know, what does that mean or symbolize? Yeah. So yeah, we have to do both. I know I do freak my children out because I always know when they're in trouble. Uh-huh. <laughs> they show up in your dreams? They show up in my dreams or they show up in any, like, I, like a little, I don't even know how to put it. It's like something in my body knows that they're not okay. Yeah. And of course, I have to be very measured in how I respond to that because they're grown up men. Yeah. With their own families and everything. And I can't go off into hysterical mother mode. You know, I have to just kind of then deepen into, okay, so what am I supposed to do with this information? Meditate on it? Do I reach out? Do I say something or not? You know, because I often, my sense of something's not wrong often is predictive. Like oh. they're on the edge of something not being okay. Mm-hmm. And, and they need yet to have the experience before it would be appropriate for me to be invited in. Yeah, you really have to sink in to know what to do then, huh? Well, yes, and because a lot of times people want to interpret dreams so they can know how to manipulate the world and their environment. And then if, the, if you get too involved in manipulating or shifting things around, then you might actually miss the full unfolding of what has to be happening. Yeah. So, so it's about, that's kind of hands-on, hands-off, hands-on, hands-off. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of these thoughts. This has been fascinating for me. And I hope for all of our listeners too, you have a lot of experience and insight on all of this. Well, I'm happy to speak with you, Lalani. You know that I always loved and respected you and I, happy to see that you're exploring the world of dreams for sure oh thank you so much and if people want to learn more about your work where can they find you online or how can they get in touch well i think best is just to google geraldine mattis and i will come up okay um if i if i come up as some hot latin chick in brazil that's not me (laughs) okay (laughs) if i come up as an old grandma that's me the up will come world's geography of love where they put geraldinemattis.com. Okay. And then the best thing too is if they just send an email through my website. Sounds good. I will also put a link to your website in the show notes to make sure they find the right uh, wonderful <laughs> grandma out there on the interwebs. <laughs> that sounds good, Lilani. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Geraldine. She and I would love to hear from you, what this conversation brought up for you, any dreams of your own that come to mind, any questions. Write me through the contact form at thedreamersden.org or connect with me on Instagram at thedreamersden. I do a lot of talking on these podcasts and you do a lot of listening, but I would love to hear your voice too. So send me a note if you'd like to. The next episode will be on the full moon. That one is a conversation with Billy Ortiz of Wake Up To Your Dreams. She is a seasoned dream worker and longtime friend and workshop co-host with the late beloved Jeremy Taylor. Be sure you come back to hear that one. Until then, wishing you deep dreams.